0: What causes quarrels? What causes fights? What's the cause of conflicts? What's the starting point of wars? Well, in the 1300s, something that was a cause and a starting point of a war, of a conflict, was a bucket. (laughs) A bucket. In 1325, there were two neighboring city states. One was called Bologna and the other one Modena, and allegedly one of the um, groups of one side snuck onto the other and they stole a bucket from a well, allegedly. This is what happened? They took a bucket and that bucket was a sign of like, we're better than you. Like, look at us, we took this from you. Like, oh, take that. Then what happened? This conflict that arose between these two where they're taking back and forth this bucket as a sign of superiority over the other. And guess what? Tons of people died in this conflict between these two city-states over a bucket. What causes wars? Well, in 1859, it was actually a pig in 1859 actually between the U.S. and Great Britain, believe it or not, there was a someone from Great Britain who owned a pig, and that pig crossed over onto some American's land. And that American was looking at that pig, and they said, mm, bacon time. <laughs> Pulled out their gun, they saw that pig, Pah, give me that bacon. And the British person said, hey, you got you to gotta make reconciliation for this. you got to pay me back for this pig that you took. And the guy's like, guess what? I don't want to pay you back. It was on my land. This conflict arose between U.S. and Great Britain. Thankfully, it was resolved diplomatically so people didn't die in this conflict, although the bucket one, it's actually called the War of the Bucket um, because of it. It was conflict. What causes fights? What causes wars? Also in the 1800s, something that started a conflict was a pastry shop, a pastry shop. There was this French pastry shop that in the middle of some political unrest, some Mexican sh- soldiers went into this French bakery shop and looted the bakery shop. The French people were like, oh, we, we don't like that. What's up with that? Once again, kind of like the pig situation, you got to make restitution. You got to pay us back for this. Damage is done to this pa- pastry shop, They said, oh, we're not going to pay it back. You know, we took it. It's ours. We get what was found in the pastry shop. And guess what? It's a conflict that arose in 1838 over a pastry shop. What causes quarrels? What causes fights? What causes wars? I mean, we started kind of just jokingly saying, oh, is it a pig? Is it a pastry shop? Is it a bucket? (laughs) The war, the bucket. (laughs) Like, it seems like those were the, the, the start of conflict. Those are the start of wars. But believe it or not, that phrase, what causes quarrels and what causes fights, is actually the starting of this section that we're going to read in James chapter 4 that I want you to turn into. James 4 gives us the answer of what is the root of quarreling. You know what quarreling is, right? You do it between your siblings all the time. It's like, <laughs> like you know what it is, fights. What, what causes those things? What is the root of it? And let me tell you here off the bat that if you're someone who who wants to have a life full of conflict, you want to quarrel with people all the time. You want to always be not quite at ease with other people just because you can't get along. If that's you, tune out the rest of the sermon. Don't listen. If the rest of your life you want it to be full of bickering, quarreling, fighting, just tune it on out. But I think most of us in the room would say, well. It's not a good thing when me and my friend are quarreling and fighting. When me and my siblings, there's this conflict. It seems like unrest between me and other people. Well, then we'd be wise to see where, what is the source, what is the cause of these fights that take place from James chapter 4. You guys there? Yeah? Let's look down. James chapter 4 verse 1 It says this. We started this sermon off with this. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? What is it? If you weren't to read on any more from there, Maybe walking into today, what would you have said? Oh, it's like, well, if I'm in conflict with, let's say hey, Evan, oh, we're in a conflict. What, what caused it? It's Evan. It was Evan. <laughs> it had to have been Evan. Or like, it's me and Matthew. It's like had to been Matthew's fault. Had to be Jesse's fault. It's like it's, we always point to, oh, it's the other person. They started this quarrel. If they didn't do this, if they didn't do that, we wouldn't have this problem. Is that what James says? Keep reading. Is it not this? You want to know the answer? What causes quarrels? What causes fights? This is the answer. Your passions are at war within you. Say, so, hey, you have these desires, these passions, these cravings of things that are at war within you. They're, they're like battling against yourself. These selfish desires that you have that what causes you to do? cause you to lash out. And that's really the start of these fights. Look at verse 2 says you desire, and this isn't a good desire. Sometimes it's translated lust, which you know lust isn't, isn't a good desire. It's, you got these wrongful, selfish, sinful desires, and guess what? You desire something, and you don't have it. Oh, man, I want that thing. I craving. Oh, I want that. Don't have it? What do you do? You murder. Whoa. Are believers in the first century, because this is a right to Christians, are Christians murdering? Some people look at, you desire and you don't have, so you murder, it being referred to when Jesus says, hey, if you um, have anger in your heart towards someone else, you've done what? It's like you've murdered them in your heart. And they say, oh, there wasn't actually murder necessarily taking place here in the first uh, century church, but it was just like a, an intense anger, which kind of makes sense if you think about quarreling, fighting, bickering. It's like, man, there's anger that's arisen from there. But also, I think it could also refer to murder as well, because if you think of some of the groups during the early start of the church, some different factions between Judaism, for example, you probably heard of these these groups before, the Pharisees, right? The religious rulers, you guys heard of Pharisees before? Not just that, you heard of that group of people? Or the Sadducees, you guys heard of that when you read, read through the Bible, the Sadducees? Well, there was another group called the Zealots. You guys heard of the Zealots before? And these Zealots, a, a sect between Judaism was who said, hey, we need to resolve to uh, violence in order to like overthrow oppressors. So, like, against the Romans, these zealots would try to, like, assassinate maybe different Roman officials to say, hey, you know, um, kind of thinking that the kingdom of heaven is going to be here on earth, so we got to overthrow the Romans, let's do it. And they would resolve to political violence. So, potentially, there also could be some people who were Jewish zealots before who converted to christianity put their face in faith in christ but they're still under this sinful way of thinking that hey man if there's a conflict you know how i should resolve it through violence so it might have actually been murder and violence taking place keeps going you covet which you know covet envy uh, something else has something that you want but you don't have the the 10th commandment in the 10th commandments that thou shalt not covet yeah you covet and guess what it's not yours you can't obtain it so what do you do you fight and quarrel. It goes on to say, you do not have because you do not ask. What is that referring to? You do not have. What do I not have? Do I not have the, the sinful stuff that I'm going for? Um, I don't think that's what it's referring to because it says because you do not ask. So if I just ask for the sinful things that I desire from God, he's going to give it to me? No. So what we think this is referring to, you do not have, is what we've been talking about in the section right before in James 3, which was what? You do not have... What have we been talking about the past two weeks? Wisdom. You don't have wisdom. You're resorted to just focusing on the here and now, maybe think of worldly wisdom that we talked about two weeks ago. And guess what? You don't have godly wisdom. You have this earthly way of thinking. Why? Because you don't ask. You don't pray. You don't ask it from God. Verse 3, maybe you do ask. Ask God for wisdom. But guess what? You don't receive it. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Yeah, maybe you're asking for wisdom, but guess what? You just want to make yourself look good, all about yourself, your, your own passions, desires, cravings. So this passage rightly identifies what the source of quarreling and fighting is, and it, it is what? Our selfish desires within us. And if you want to avoid quarrels, you need to battle and fight those sinful, selfish desires that are within you. That are within you. Because guess what? Even as a Christian, you're still encased in sinful flesh that wants to do the wrong thing. And there seems to be this battle almost that takes place between the believer, between, oh man, I'm given these new desires by Christ. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. You know, Galatians 5, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kind of, oh man, the Christian has the desire to do the right thing, it has the ability to do the, do the right thing, but also we're still in our sinful flesh, we're not perfect, and oh man, uh, I see that person, that thing that other person has, and I want it. Seems to be this conflict in the life of a believer that we need to wrap our minds around. Point number one, write it down this way, understand the Christian's internal conflict, Understand the Christian's internal conflict. We alluded to it a little bit. Before we talk about the Christian's internal conflict, let's talk about the unbeliever for a second. The unbeliever, in some cases, doesn't even desire to do the right thing. So they completely just do the wrong thing. But also, maybe maybe there's some unbelievers in the room who, man, they do seem to have this desire to do the right thing, but they're not able to do the right thing. Or maybe here and now I'm able to, oh, you know, do the right thing here and there. But, man, there's the general category of my life is doing the wrong thing. It's, oh, I feel like this conflict. Oh, maybe I feel like doing the right thing, but I, I can't do it. Why is that for the unbeliever? Well, Scripture says it's because an unbeliever is enslaved to sin. Enslaved. Think about that. A slave is like you have no choice but to do what the, the master says. Well, guess what? For the unbeliever, you know who your master is? Yeah. Satan, and the, the one who's all about sin, Romans 6, 17, in the middle it says, you were once slaves of sin. Unbelievers, apart from Christ, even if there's this desire of, oh man, I, every now and then I want to do the right thing, guess what? You're not able to because you're enslaved to sin. The general pattern of your life is gonna be wickedness, unrighteousness, things that aren't pleasing in God's sight. But you see, the great thing about putting your trust in Christ is there's a change in position. You go from being dead in your sin, Ephesians 2, think of revival last year, Pastor Mike talking about it, you have to just give into sin, to now you become what's referred to also in Romans 6, 17 as slaves of righteousness. Means, hey, you can't help but do the right thing. Not perfectly, but the general pattern of your life is right behavior, godliness. It's a good thing. Galatians 5.24 rightly talks about the believer when it says, those who belong to Christ Jesus, those that are his, have done what? Crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's an interesting way to think about it. Think of the crucifixion of Christ. Think of that for a second. The suffering that he went through, that he was put to death. Saying, hey, the believer, when they say, I give my life to Christ... What they are saying is, my sinful desires, my sinful life, you know what I'm doing? I'm crucifying it. That's such a gruesome word. Putting it to death. I'm no longer doing that. Rather, I'm doing what God wants me to do. Does it mean Christians are perfect? Yes. No, of course not. I mean, points to me, a perfect Christian. It's like, oh, well, I mean, Kevin and Jesse, the leaders are perfect. It's like, no, they're not. As a believer, you're never going to be perfect. But guess what? The general pattern of your life is going to be right behavior. But guess what? Even believers, they face temptation. That feeling of, oh man, here's a temptation to do the wrong thing and don't want to give into it. But sometimes it almost feels like, you know how they picture it in the movies with like an angel and a demon on the shoulder and it's like, do the wrong thing. It's like, oh, do the wrong thing. And then the angel is like, oh, do the right thing. It's like, oh, okay. It's always like white and red too. It's like, oh, wrong thing, right thing. And that's almost sometimes how it feels. That's why I think it's characterized by it, because it feels like this temptation. Oh man, sometimes I feel like doing the right thing. Sometimes I feel like doing the wrong thing. And I think even unbelievers can relate to that struggle if there is a desire sometimes to do the right thing. And it almost can feel discouraging because oh man, sometimes I feel like doing the right thing. Sometimes I feel like doing the wrong thing. I mean, who's gonna win this time? The right thing or the wrong thing? I don't know. It feels like there's this conflict that takes place. I'm here to tell you that if you're a Christian, you should be encouraged and confident in the midst of temptation. But if you're an unbeliever, you probably should be discouraged in the face of temptation. Because if you're an unbeliever, and okay, maybe every now and then you feel like doing the right thing, guess what? You don't have the ability to carry it out because you don't have the Spirit within you. You can try really hard. You can do your best to say, this sin I need to get rid of, but guess what? You're probably stuck in the same sin over and over and over again, and you're like, why can't I get rid of it? It's because you don't have the Spirit within you. Now take it to the flip side. If you're a Christian, there should should be a confidence, not in yourself, when you're facing temptation. You're saying, hey, because I have the Spirit within me, which takes place at the moment you put your life in Christ, you repent your sins, you trust in him, you're given the new desires. Galatians 5 talks about that. Matthew 7, knowing them by their fruits. Uh, Titus 3 even talks about this. At the Titus 3 verse 5, it says, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is like you're given new life as a Christian. You're dead, now you're alive. And those that spirit within you gives you the ability to have victory over sin that you didn't have before. Unbeliever, yeah, maybe here and then we'll do the right thing, but can't have victory over sin. The believer can be confident because the victory has been won in Christ and I can put to death by the power of the spirit sin that is in my life. Obviously not perfection, but the broad category of my life being holiness. I remember it being illustrated this way. Think of, you know, someone's got a, a white shirt on. Picture I got a white shirt right here. Maybe take Madison's shirt. It's like right here, white shirt. And then someone, you know, is a little, little sloppy with the ketchup. And, oh, spill some ketchup on my white shirt. I'm like, oh. It's like if you have white shoes and someone steps on it, you're like, oh, you don't like that person as much. Maybe that's the start of conflicts. It's like, yeah, it's all oh, that selfish desire to keep your shoes white. There you go. See how that connection before? All right, someone gets that ketchup on your white shirt. Now, picture that ketchup being sin in your life. Now, say you had that ketchup on, the, on, the, on your shirt, and you just took a rag, and you said, I'm going to scrub as hard as I can by myself to make it perfectly white like the rest of the shirt. Are you gonna be able to, just by yourself, just scrubbing right there to take that stain and make it perfectly white like the rest of the shirt? By yourself. You can't. You need something else. You need some sort of outside chemical to put it on there and to make it completely clean. See, the unbeliever is like that person who's got to stand on the shirt, sees that sin in their life and they don't like it. And they say, oh, I just got to try harder to get it out. I got to work a little bit more to say no, Ooh, scrub it out. But guess what? You give into the sin again. Oh, I got to try some more. Give into the sin again. Draw, work harder. Give me the sin again. You're not able to do it on your own. That's why it's discouraging. But the believer said, Man, what can be not only my past sins can be made clean because of the death of Christ, but future sins I can have victory over because of the Spirit. John 16 is an interesting passage that talks about this. In John chapter 16. Jesus tells his disciples, hey, you know it's a good thing that I'm leaving you? It's kind of like a weird passage. Like, could you imagine? You're the disciples. You've learned a lot from Jesus. He's taught you how to live, how to think, what you sh- your focus should be. And Jesus says, oh, yeah, by the way, I- I'm leaving soon. You know, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to suffer and die. But it's actually a good thing that I'm leaving you. You'd be like, what? Like, <laughs> How's that a good thing, Jesus? like, It's like, oh, no, it's actually going to be your- to your advantage that I leave. You're like, how? (laughs) Like, and specifically like, oh, in your fight against sin, it's going to be better for you to leave. You'd be thinking like, no, I think it's better for me to have Jesus next to me saying like, don't do this, do that. That would be better. But John 16 verse 7, Jesus says this, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. This is true. It is to your advantage that I go away. It's a good thing. Why? For if I don't go away, if I don't leave, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, saying, Hey, if I don't leave, you're not going to receive this helper. This helper is the Holy Spirit. Third person of the Godhead that resides inside of believers. If Jesus didn't leave, guess what? You wouldn't have the spirit inside of you as a Christian. Say so, hey, it's a good thing, because even better than having Jesus stand right next to you and say, Don't give into this, don't give into that, is having the spirit inside of you giving you the ability to fight sin. That's why there should be such encouragement from that. I think it's rightly described helper. They're to help you. Say no to sin. It's a good thing. There's going to be that conflict. There's going to be that temptation. Oh, should I do the right thing? Should I do the wrong thing? But there should be assurance in the life of the Christian that there can be victory over sin because of the Holy Spirit. That's why in Galatians 2.20, Paul can write, I have been crucified with Christ. We already talked about that. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So hey, this life that I now live, it's not about me. It's not even lived by the power of me, it's by the power of Christ. I even like how it's described. The life that I now live in the flesh, it's like even I still have the flesh, I still have sinful flesh. But guess what? Life's well, all about Christ. It should be a confidence, not an arrogance, not a pride. I mean, you know the passage, anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. So it's not, oh man, I, you know, I'm impenetrable to sin. It's like, no, the confidence doesn't come from you. The assurance comes from the spirit. Ability to say no to sin. But in James 4, James is addressing the people who feel that internal conflict. And it's resulted in quarrels and fights. They, verse 2 says, you desire, you've got those sinful desires, and oh, you know you shouldn't give in to them as a Christian. You have the ability to say no, but as you know, Christians aren't perfect. and They gave in to it, and what do they do? They murder they covet, they have that sinful desire that they have the ability to say no to, because sin isn't just something that passively happens to us. We actively engage in it. And oh, you should say no to it, but you give in to your sinful desires, and what do you do? You fight and quarrel. See, giving into sinful desires has big consequences. Point number two: don't give in to selfish desires. As a Christian. The process of sanctification, which is being more like Christ, is different than justification, being made right with God. Justification, being made right with God, is completely a gift from God. It's completely done by God. It's not as a result of our works that no one may boast. It's a complete God thing. But guess what? Growing in holiness is not only a work of the Spirit. The Spirit's naturally going to produce these things in your life. But guess what? You're also called to live and to work for His good pleasure, to put in the work yourself. Different than justification. It's well, are you able to work and to live according to this good pleasure on your own? No. Obviously that's a gift of the spirit, but you can't just sit back and say, oh, I'm on the couch, you know, whatever. It's just gonna happen. It's like, no, when you've got those that fight against those selfish desires, rely on the spirit, don't give into it. Feel like being selfish, making it about you, don't give in to it. One reason you shouldn't give in to your selfish desires. Because ultimately, they're never going to be satisfied. Never going to be satisfied. You're going to crave it again. Maybe you give into that selfish desire, and for that moment, you feel, "Oh man, that was worth it." It's all gone now. Well, what usually happens not too long after comes up again. You guys experienced that before when you face sin, you give in to it. Oh man, it feel good for. It. Comes back up. Again and again and again. I remember seeing that principle true in my own life when um, I used to be, I'd even use this word, like addicted to soda. It's like addicted to soda. I had this craving for soda. And I know like one day, it's like, oh man, I have this craving for a nice root beer. Anybody else? Like number one soda in my opinion, root beer, right at the top. I don't care what, what brand, it's just my own, it's not, this isn't like God's word, it's just my own opinion here. It's root beer. Um, it's the best one. You know, I've got this craving. Think of it, lunch. Nathan out on lunch break. Oh, man. There it is, the root beer right there. Oh, I, desire, I want it. And then I guess what? Oh, give in to that, give in to that desire. Drink it. Oh, man, that was so good. And guess what? Seems like desire is gone. But what happens the next day? I look there and, oh, man, there's a Fanta or cactus cooler. Anybody cactus cooler? It's like, okay, got some more cheers for that. It's like, oh man, oof. Ah, oh, that looks pretty good. Ah, oh, I'm a little thirsty. Maybe some of you guys now are like, oh man, I'm a little thirsty right now too. Like, that does sound good. Now you have the craving and desire for a cactus cooler. It's like, and what do I do? Give into that desire and oh, psh, guess what? Oh man, desire's gone. Oh, wow, it worked. No more, so- no more desire for soda. Yeah, now you guys are drinking all your water. Is that? It's like, because you're thirsty. It's like, you have the desire for water, and what do you, guess what? Let's use water, for example. Oh, I got the water. Guess what? Oh, you're never going to be thirsty for water again. Oh, guess what? Give it like five minutes. Then the next day, oh, what do I see? Coca-Cola, which is better than Pepsi. Sorry. Um, amen. Anybody? Amen. Yeah. It's like, I see that Coca-Cola. Not this weird like Diet, get all the diets out of here. Like, oh, gross. Um, see that Coca Cola, and you're like, oof, I saw Santa drink it on a commercial. like, um, And polar bears tossing it around. It's like, yeah, uh, I'm craving that. I want that. And well, what do you do? Coca Cola. I mean, you see that those desires uh, are not satisfied. So, too, as you've experienced when you face temptation, because every single one of us in this room has, where maybe you give into that selfish desire and you think, oh, it's satisfied, but guess what? shortly after, creeps back into it. And you need to see that there's consequences by giving into them. Let's give an example, biblical example. Luke chapter 15, don't need to turn there, but you know it, story of the prodigal son. Remember that, prodigal son? He said, hey, dad, I'm kind of done living with you. Give me my inheritance, I'm out of here. I wanna go live it up, do my own thing. So his dad says, what? All right, here's your inheritance. What does he do? Squanders his wealth, gives in completely to whatever he feels like doing. Oh yeah, gonna live it up, do my own thing. Oh yeah, all about me. You know where he ends up? Remember that? Yeah. He he's eaten the trash with the pigs in the pigsty. It's like, wow, great. What a great ending! Like, could you imagine if that was like a story? It's like, oh, and then he end up with the pigsty. The end. It's like, wow, what a happy end. it just, that's what it ended up with. Here's another interesting example that I think came up in our DBR. Remember um, Numbers chapter 11, there was the complaint of Israel for, hey, we're sick of this manna, God. Remember that? Did you re- read that this week? It was so interesting how this came up when I was prepping um, this week. Numbers 11, we say, we're sick of this manna. You know what we want? Lamb. We want the meat, Arby's. We have the meats. It's like, we want, we want the meats, like it's like the guy who shot the pig. He's like, oh, I, want, I guess not pig. It's like we want meat. It's like give us the meats. And God said, okay, you know what? I'm gonna give you meat till your heart's desire. Like till you're like throwing up. You got that much meat. And then after, because they complained, what, do you remember what God did? What was it? A plague. He sent a plague to say, hey, yeah, you're complaining against me. But do you know who received the plague? Numbers 11, 34, it said they buried the people who had, so interesting right here, the craving. I thought that was such an interesting description, the people who had the craving, the desire. Oh, what God you gave me is not enough. That's what covetousness comes from. I want more envy. Talk about consequences from there. Luke 8 is another example. The third soil people who are choked out by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life saying don't do that it's not worth it doesn't satisfy rather you need to resist that temptation that you face first peter 2:11 says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. I mean, think of exiles. Think of like uh, maybe Babylonian captivity, for example. These people that were taken from their, from their home and they were captured by another, um, another group of people. And guess what? You're not living in a place that's not your home. Saying, hey, believers, this place is not your home. You're living as sojourners and exiles. And this is what you're called to, to abstain. Abstain, that's stay as far away as you can abstain from what we see this word come up again the passions of the flesh Just harkens back to james 4 right there because you spend it on your passions all about yourself no abstain from the passions of the flesh which we see it, this terminology come up again wage war against your soul those selfish desires all oh, they look good do the hard thing and say no You have the ability to. You can't say, oh, I I just had to give in. No, if you're a Christian, have the ability to say no. Abstain. That terminology of sojourners, exiles, abstain. Can you think of, in biblical history, an example where where sojourners and exiles had to abstain, stay away from something? Think of Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Daniel, his friends, taking over, as exiles to Babylon, and the king said, "Hey, I want you to eat this food, which was the food that people of Israel were not supposed to eat. Given eat all this fatty food, basically, like eat the eat this food that looks good. It's like, oh man, it's gonna make you nice, nice and plump. Um, <laughs> like you know, you're gonna look very, very well, well eaten, or not well eaten. Uh, like you're, yeah, you're gonna be well. No, you're gonna eat quite a lot. And what does Daniel say? Do you remember?" Some people go on this diet now called like the Daniel Fast. Uh, She's like I don't know, kind of weird. Um, it's like, it's like oh, I'm just going to do this thing because what he said: give me the, give me the veggies. Yeah, it's like yeah, you know, you know Nathan's not doing that Daniel Fast. Like oh yeah, yeah, give me the broccoli and the the lettuce. It's like whoa, gross. Like why would you want to do that? And Daniel probably had this temptation, as long with the counterparts with him. Am I going to give in to what the think about it, Babylonian king, most powerful person alive at that point, is telling me to do, or am I going to say, no, I'm rather going to do what God wants me to do, which is hard. He says, guess what? I'm going to abstain from the food that the king wants me to eat, and what does God do? He blesses him. At the end of this period, him and his friends who are eating the veggies turn off way better than, than, the, uh, than the rest of them. God blesses him for his faithfulness and for his obedience. He sees the good that comes from not just giving in to those cravings. A great passage that I think will motivate us to resist temptation. I want you to turn to this one. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Fairly well-known passage, but I think it gives us some motivations, maybe some things for us to think about when we're in the thralls of temptation. Temptation. When you feel like making it about you, all selfish, and you're going to start a fight, what should we remember? Hebrews 12, look at verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, which that's talking about all the believers that have ran the race before you. And if you think of Hebrews 12, you probably think of the chapter right before where it lists all these believers who did hard things for God. I mean Abraham. You think Abraham wanted to sacrifice his one and only son that he was waiting for for hundred years to have like his son for once and now he's giving him a son. Now God says, I want you to kill him. Like you think he was like, oh yeah, I can't wait to do that, God. It's like, no, don't want to do it. But guess what? He was willing to do the hard thing for God. Another, another example Moses. I mean, Moses may be more a negative example where it's like, oh, he really didn't want to do what God told him to do. And God finally had to say, no, you're going to go tell Pharaoh to let the people go. And he's like, oh, please, I'm not a good speaker. Like, send Aaron. God's like, no, you're going to go do it. These examples, you could go on in Hebrews 11 of think of all the believers before you that ran the Christian race or the Christian life well that did the hard thing in the midst of temptation. I mean, you can think of people in church history that were killed for what they believe. I mean, think about it. They could have given in to their selfish desire of, oh man, I'm just gonna say, like, maybe I don't even, uh, say, maybe in my mind I can just say, oh yeah, I know that the Bible's true, but I'll just say like, oh yeah, I don't believe in the whole Christianity thing. And guess what? I won't be killed. But guess what? They were honest and said, I believe this is true. Think of all those believers. Now in light of that, Keep reading, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Picture that. A believer shouldn't have sin cling closely. It's like those sins that, oh man, they're, they're right next to me. I do them all the time. No, put them aside, lay them aside, be done with them, abstain from them. Even a category of sin and weight, because not everything that... Um, there can be, obviously, things that are sinful that are pulling us away from God, but maybe things that aren't necessarily sinful in and of themselves, but can be sinful if they're pulling us away from God. Like this. Is social media sinful? I mean, no. It can be. Sports. are sports sinful? No. It can be. Video games can be. It's like, these are the ideas of, guess what? If it's Something, not even necessarily a sin in and of itself, but if it's pulling you away from Christ, causing you to give in to wrong things and make it about you, lay it aside. And this is what your focus should be, Hebrews 2. Let us run the race with endurance that's set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Christian, when you're in the face of temptation and you're wanting to give in to those selfish desires, what should your focus be? Look to Jesus. Get your mind set on him who how to go through something hard that he didn't even necessarily really want to go through. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane right before he was about to be crucified. Was he like, yeah, I can't wait to go die on the cross and be tortured? It's like, No, he was praying to God, God, if there's any way, let this cup, what? Pass from me. But guess what? I'm going to submit to the will of the Father. He endured the cross and wasn't, oh, i got to go through this. It like, wasn't like a joy, oh, I can't wait. But it was... The joy that was set before him, why was it a joy? Because of the good that would come from it. The good of you not giving into sin, there should be joy because of what's going to come from it. James 1, testing of your faith, which can also be uh, translated tempting of your faith, temptations of sin, if you don't give into it, produces endurance. So much good that comes from not giving into selfish desires. Usually we stop there in Hebrews chapter 12 and say, okay, yeah, look, look to Jesus. Um, and lay aside the sin and wait. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. It says, Hey, consider him. Who is that? Who's him? Jesus. Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Think of, hey, remember Jesus. He was, people didn't like him. He went through much suffering. Why? Why, why should you consider, which is think upon, ponder him? Why? so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You feel weary when you're facing that sin that you've been facing? You feel faint-hearted, oh, I can't give in to it? Consider Christ who endured the torture that he went through. One more verse, verse four. It says, in your struggle against sin, that that internal conflict that you feel, have you, you have not yet, rather, resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Think about that. Have you fought this sin? Maybe that sending sin you think in your mind is like, man, have you fought that sin so much that you've resisted it so hard that you've gotten to the point of shedding your blood? Like that's how hard you're, you're not saying no to it. It's like, no, like that'd be kind of weird. It's like, what? Well, I'm like resisting and what? All of a sudden like blood starts like coming up. It's like, well, you know, who did endure something difficult for the good that came from it, Christ. And he did it to the point of shedding his own blood. And yet we think, oh man, I was really fighting hard against that temptation. But man, if it, if it reaches like this point, oh man, just give into it. And he experienced the fullness of every temptation. I know I've brought this point up before, but Jesus, think about it. When you experience temptation and you give into it, you've only experienced this much of the temptation. If you never give in to that temptation, guess what? You experience the fullness. So every temptation that Christ went through, he experienced the fullness because he never gave in to it. He endured the cross. Believer, when you're tempted to give in to your selfish desires, put your focus on Jesus. Consider him. Ponder him. I mean, even think about how Jesus fought temptation. If I say Jesus' temptation, you think of Jesus being tempted by Satan, Satan in the wilderness. Yeah, Matthew chapter 4. Um, and how does Jesus respond when he's tempted? Obviously, he doesn't have selfish desires because he's God, but he's tempted by Satan externally and, hey, do, the, do, this, do this wrong thing. How does Jesus reply? How does he fight temptation? God's word. God's word. It's interesting because Satan tries to use God's word to tempt him and try to twist it a little bit. And Jesus responds with God's word. Maybe you say, man, this temptation that I've been fighting, I have to give in to it. I've been trying so hard. I've been trying to resist this temptation so hard. I've been trying. How many verses do you have memorized in regards to that sin that you are tempted by? If the answer's none or one, are you, are you trying? Don't, don't think we're really trying. Garden of Gethsemane, another temptation of sorts by, by Christ. He's about to suffer, talked about it in the cross. Doesn't want to do it. Is he going to submit to the will of the Father? Is he going to say, oh, I'm going rogue, doing my own thing. Forget this whole crucifixion thing. I don't want to go through it. How does he respond to that temptation? What does he do? He prays. Says, God, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. But guess what? Not my will, but yours be done. You say, Yeah, I'm fighting this temptation. I've been trying really hard against this one. How much have you prayed about it? Oh, well, maybe once I give into the temptation, I feel conviction, so I pray about it for a day and for a couple days, and I'm praying a lot, but then I just stop praying about it. Are you trying? Being in God's word, prayer, it sounds so elementary, but we need that reminder because it's the basics that we often neglect. We think, oh, man, uh, oh, so elementary. I gotta go on to these other things. That's how you have victory over sin. Comes from the Spirit. And you align yourself with the Spirit by being in God's word and praying to the Father. I mean, isn't that what James 4 tells us a little bit? James 4, uh, verse, end of verse 2. You do not have, we said that was wisdom because you don't ask. Hey, you're giving it to yourself to desire. Guess what? You don't have wisdom and you're desiring those things. Why? You're not praying. Verse three, you ask, okay, maybe you are praying. You don't receive, why? You're praying wrongfully to make it all about you. See, one of the great blessings about prayer is not only that we get to ask things of God, because that often happens, right? You pray, hey God, help this, help this, help this. But by you talking to God and considering who you're talking to and the things that he desires, you're you're aligning your thoughts with With God's thoughts. Man, what does He want me to think? What does He want me to do? And the more you pray, you're going to learn to align your desires with God's desires. Point number three, we put it this way: align your desires with God's through daily prayer. Align your desires with God's through daily prayer. Some of us aren't even praying. Christian, Krishna, I hope you're praying. You should be. But others of us, maybe we're praying wrongly. What are you praying for? Maybe you pray before a test. God, just help me do well on this test. Maybe you pray before you meal. God, thank you for this food. Someone gets sick. God, please help heal this person. Is that what we should be praying for? Let's look at Matthew chapter 6. It's going to give us, in Jesus teaching the disciples to pray, give us categories of what we should pray for. What does it look like to pray rightfully and not wrongly? Because I don't want to pray selfishly about myself only. Let's have Jesus teach us, like he did his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, how to pray seems so elementary, but think not many of us are doing this well. If I was to say, hey, raise your hand if you think you've, you've made it with your prayer life, and your prayer life doesn't need any growth, um, I don't think any of us would raise our hand. Let's learn then what we can. Look at verse 5. It says, James six, or, sorry, Matthew 6, 5, it says, and when you pray, which even there, it's assuming that you are praying, You must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Think about when you pray first. Do you ever pray by yourself? Or do you only pray at church? small groups, to be seen by other people. That's praying wrongly. Just, oh man, because they're going to think this about me. No, that's why it says the pattern, hey, go into your room by yourself. Because prayer, the purpose isn't so that other people think you're godly, think you're great. No, it's to talk to God. Request things of Him. Spend time talking with Him like like you would talk with someone else. Verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Hey, when you pray, with other people, you're just trying to make it, oh, man, i got to make sure I make it a really long prayer, or else they're going to think, oh, man, I don't know what to say, and you're just kind of just saying things just to say things. It's not how you're supposed to pray. Rather, pray then like this. Look at verse 9 says, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Is that what your prayers look like? If we were to take your prayers from this past week and line it up with a template, which is not supposed to be prayed necessarily verbatim, but would it line up? Or are your prayers more about, help me, God, help me, help this to go well in my life? How much of request do you find in this example, this template? Look at, look at, let's look at it again. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It starts by saying, hey, I'm thinking about who I'm talking to, God. Thinking about his attributes. You see the transcendence and imminence of God. He's he's our father. You got this relationship. He's near to us, but he's also in heaven. And he's hallowed, which is holy, set apart. I'm thinking about who am I talking to, pondering his attributes, his goodness. Verse 10, will God help my kingdom to be great and my will to take place. No, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, if we start our prayers first by thinking about who God is and what is it that God desires, his kingdom come, his will be done, guess what, the rest of our prayers are gonna be aligned with God's requests and that he would want us to pray rather than what we just think, oh, this is what I wanna pray about. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread, prayer of thanksgiving. Verse 12, confession, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Verse 13, finally you see some requests. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, I'm not saying praying for the test to go well is, I'm not saying you shouldn't pray about that. I'm not saying you should never pray about me, me, me. I mean, we pray those all the time. But I'm saying, because it's so naturally for us to pray about me, 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 let's First, start our prayers by thinking about God. What does he want me to pray about? And in this passage, we see categories of things he wants us to pray about. Start praying for things that you know God desires. I think oftentimes we get discouraged when we pray. Oh, we don't really see answers because we're praying about things that we desire rather than what God desires. Here's a great verse. 1 John five fourteen. It's interesting. It says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, toward God. So we can have confidence when we go to God that if we ask anything, he will hear us. Think about that. If we ask anything, God, he's going to hear us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. And we know that we have the request that we ask of him. Think about that. It says, if we ask anything, he's going to hear us. And if he hears us, he's going to answer them. Whoa. I know you're not there, but I, re- I misread 1 John 5 14 and 15. It's not whatever you ask of him. It says this this is the confidence we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. What's the whatever we ask? What's according to his will? And we know that we can have the requests. What requests? Things that are in accordance with his will whatever we ask of him, are you discouraged because God's not answering your prayers that you're asking? Well, guess what? Start praying for things that you know is in accordance with God's will. What does God want to happen? see happen? He wants to see people saved. He wants to see people sanctified. Guess what? You're going to see some fruit take place in that because he wants to answer that. That's You know by scripture, that's in accordance with his will. We don't have to guess. Does so God want me to pray for this? Or no, it's in accordance with his will. I know he wants to see people saved and sanctified. He's gonna answer that prayer. There should be a confidence that when we ask the Father, he wants to answer that prayer. You pray, hey God, regularly, humbly come before him. Help me to have victory over this selfish desire. Does he want to answer that prayer? Yes. And he will answer that prayer, but we don't seem to ask. Or we do for a little bit, but then we forget about it and, yeah, stop praying. Solution to battle temptation, to fight quarreling, To avoid quarrels, fights, conflicts, to have victory over those selfish desires. Well, first, obviously, we talked about being right with God. You have to have the Spirit. But then, by praying in accordance with Matthew chapter 6, aligning your prayers with what God would want, you'll see some victory over those selfish desires. Here's a great prayer Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. God, look at me. Look inside of me. My thoughts, everything about me. My heart, my motivations, my actions. See if there's any grievous way in me, any sinfulness in me, any wrong thing in me. God, expose it to me. Why? So I can get rid of it. And then lead me in the way everlasting. How you want me to live. What a great example. Prayer has an impact. Prayer has power. Not because of us, but because of the one we're praying to. Who's in charge of all things. Sovereign. There's a guy who lived in the 19th century who was reliant upon prayer. a guy named George Mueller. He's a guy who started a bunch of orphanages. and uh, he, There's some crazy examples of God answering this guy who was fervent in prayer. One example was, you know, he needed to provide a meal for the orphans and he didn't have any food, no food. So he grabs them all together and says, hey, let's sit around the table and let's thank God for the food. Could you imagine being one of those orphans? You're like, there's no food on the table. (laughs) Like, what are we doing? Like, how are we thanking God? And you know what he does? He prays. He prays. Not to long after, a knock comes at the door, and guess what? It's a, a baker there. A baker opens the door and says, hey, I've got some leftover, leftover food. You want it? What? What a weird coincidence. You know what? It's not a coincidence. Shortly after that, you know what? There's another knock on the door, and guess what it is? A milkman. Milkman. Oh, cart broke down. It's all gonna to go to waste. You want some milk? Wow, what crazy two coincidences that just happened right there. Wow. What chance? Like, wow. No. about the diligence of this man to pray. And trust me, this wasn't just like a single prayer. This guy is characteristic of his life. There's many examples of this guy being so reliant and fervent upon prayer and God answering it. Prayer has power. Be people that are reliant upon God in prayer to battle those selfish desires. If you want your life to be filled with conflict, quarrels, selfishness, don't pray. If you want your life to be filled with peace, unity, holiness, godliness, be constant and reliant upon God through prayer. Speaking of that, let's pray right now. God, we thank you that we can have victory over sin because of the work of Christ. We can have confidence when facing temptation and we don't have to give in to sin. We're no longer slaves of sin because we're children of God. Help us, those that are Christians in them to fight against sin and to battle it through prayer to be reliant upon you to not give into our sinful flesh, but to say, no, rather I'm going to choose to pray for what God desires, choose to do what God desires, and make it all about him and not myself. God, help us to transform our lives this week. Help us to be more reliant upon you than we have before. Help us to pray differently this week and moving forward than we ever have. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.